Good evening and uh, welcome to this evening's special Ralph Miliband event on the global financial crisis revisited. Revisited because the three of us were here on the very dramatic days of October, and to be precise, on the 20th of October 2008, where Martin and Will were kind enough to join me in the discussion of the global financial crisis at that very, very pressing moment. They were generous to come on the 20th of October 2008, and they're even more generous to come again to revisit it, to say something about where we are now, what the institutional issues are, what the future structures of capitalism may be like, what the implications are globally and perhaps particularly for also for the UK. So let me just start by introducing them, although they need very little introduction. Uh, let me uh, then say something about what was said last time as a backdrop for this evening. I think it would be useful if I did that. And then I will open up with a series of questions. We'll do that for about 50 minutes or so, and then the floor will, of course, be yours. Well, first of all, welcome to you all uh, again. And it's so nice to see so many people here during this term, when it's an exam term, when numbers can drop off quite sharply. So I hope this is productive, not just for this evening, but for those of you sitting exams for your actual papers. Um, in a few days' time. Let me just say, uh, as I say, um, about Will, of course. You, you both know Will Hutton and Martin Wolf, no doubt, very well. They are both outstanding journalists, both outstanding economic commentators with very long, distinguished histories. On top of that, Will, of course, is the chief executive of the Work Foundation and an LSE governor. He's also visiting the center that Mary Caldo and I run, the Center for Global Governance, and he's currently a distinguished fellow here at the LSE as well. He has written many best-selling books, The State We're In, The World We're In, and The Writing on the Wall about the challenges, above all, that China faces in its competition with the USA and with Europe, and the significance of that global competition for models of industrial and political development. Martin Wolf is associate editor, of course, and chief economics commentator at the Financial Times, an honorary graduate PhD of the LSE. His latest book is Fixing Global Finance. It could not be more relevant. And his columns, both columns of both these gentlemen, are read across the world on a regular basis. And I myself have learned a great deal from both of them over a very long period of time. What they said last time on the 20th of October goes something like this. What I've looked for in summarizing their views is commonalities of emphasis, although there will be some differences of recommendation. And before I go on, I want to thank my PhD student, Hans Trees, wherever he is, for going through the transcripts to cull some of these points, which I think are a very useful backdrop. So I asked them what was distinctive about the global financial crisis as it was developing on the 20th of October. What, one, the, global, the current global financial crisis is the most severe crisis of the core, it was agreed. That is of the world's most advanced financial uh, economies since World War II. Two, its spillover effects, they argued, have been felt across the world, will continue to be felt across the world, not just across the world's stock markets, but will profoundly spill over into a deep crisis of the, of the real economy. Three, a clear distinctive feature of the crisis was, they suggested, the sheer scale of, in inverted commas, financialization. That is not only the, the impact of the growing size of the global financial system versus the real economy, 
but also the impact of new kinds of financial markets and new kinds of instruments like derivatives. One consequence of this, they suggested, was the breakdown of the traditional banking model, which allowed in turn for the mushrooming of securitization. The enormous volume of financial activity and the size of remuneration packages have become unprecedented, are unprecedented, with serious implications. Four, they pointed to two extreme mismatches or structural difficulties, if not contradictions, that were characteristic of the crisis to that point. On the domestic level, the size of countries' financial sectors, such as Iceland, Ireland, Luxembourg, one might say Scotland, but other countries besides, vis-a-vis -vis the potential public financial support for them, i.e. the constant risk that the public purse threatens to be overrun by the scale of the crises and the debts incurred, and secondly, the global, at the global level, the severe imbalance between Asia's forex savings and reserves on the one side and the scale, the sheer scale of US debt on the other. Five, in this context, the argument was made that the challenges that present themselves in today's globalized financial markets pose a particular challenge to the IFIs, the international financial institutions, particularly the IMF, which have effectively been out overrun. The IMF's role has diminished as is neither the structural power of accredited countries, particularly the US, nor adequate financial firepower. Thus, there is little or no external support available to core countries since the IMS resources are too limited and countries outside the core are financially too weak. They suggested, finally, that the crisis is not yet comparable to the Great Depression, and Martin Wolf suggested at the time that the banking crisis is still at that point, was still at that point relatively cheap because authorities reacted relatively promptly in contrast to the crises in Japan and Scandinavia and provided early liquidity bailouts and cooperated internationally. So just to go on just for a second, they said things had been learned from past crises which were operative in the response to the global financial crisis as it was unfolding. The Great Depression, the Scandinavian and the Japanese crisis taught governments to act quickly, cooperate internationally, bail out struggling financial institutions and if necessary provide liquidity to markets. This, they suggested, was preventing a domino effect, in other words, preventing the actual, uh, uh, blocking the actual bankruptcy of the, of the banking system, although they were, de, in a sense, de facto bankrupt, they weren't yet de euro bankrupt, and halting the, the domino effect as it was developing. Secondly, they suggested the important lessons had been learned about the importance of establishing bad banks or bad insurers, as was learned from the case of the SNL crisis, the Lloyds of London crisis, and these were valuable lessons to bear in mind going forward. And finally, they said, nearly everyone will bear in mind the risks of social unrest and political disturbance that is possible in times of severe economic dislocation, the dangers of the rise of nationalism, the dangers of the re-rise of protectionism, the dangers of uh, the intensification of geopolitical conflict, therefore all the more reason to act quickly, urgently, and decisively to defuse the costs and spread the risks. What did they recommend? They recommended, and this is my final set of points, they recommended we need to undo, correct, very lax monetary policies, which has made too much cheap money available for too long. We need to improve global financial regulation, financial regulation, I should say, prohibit banks from running offshore balance street vehicles, prevent the buildup of unsustainable levels of securitized assets, and understand that the risks that inadequately capitalized financial institutions posed to the financial system got out of hand, and so on and so on. A series of highly 
precise sets of analysis with a series of precise sets of recommendations. I'm going to now pick up them on some of these points um, and, uh, and start with Martin. Well, let me just first ask you guys, do you, do you think that was a reasonable summary of, as far as you can remember, <laughs> the discussion on the 20th of October? If not, blame him. <laughs> Very good. A adequate starting point. Yes, I, I just, uh, yes, I think it was more than an adequate starting point. I'm sure that we, when we said that monetary policy should be tighter, I think we were talking about yes. structural conditions yes, rather exactly. than suggesting that monetary yeah. policy should have been tightened in October. Indeed. That would have been <laughs> Indeed. That would exactly. have been fairly mad, but otherwise Indeed. I think it, you managed to make it remarkably coherent. Thank you, Hans. Okay, moving on. Then let me just start with the first question to Martin Wolf, because one of the things he said at the time, in fact you stressed that the credit crunch at that point is still was, in, in terms of banking crisis, a relatively cheap crisis. That is to say the costs of the downside were not going to be as great as some banking crises have been. And I wonder whether you still agree with this. And in this context, do you believe that the following of the release of the US Treasury stress, te stress tests, which for the benefit of the audience showed that the further 75 billion of equity was still needed to top up the top US banks, that we're coming to the end of capital injections or not? But to take the two questions separately, uh, I'm, I imagine, though it's difficult to remember perfectly, that what I was referring to was the direct fiscal cost of bailing out the banking system as such. And there are following points worth mentioning. At this stage, we don't know what they will, what they will be, uh, partly because we don't know what happens to the banks, and even more important because a number of governments, including not least, to put it mildly, but particularly our own, have made very large contingent um, have, have, have accepted very large contingent claims against the banking system through the guarantees that they have provided. The US government has done the same. Indeed, most governments have done that. And how much that will end up costing really does depend on what happens to the quality of assets over the next many, many years. And we can't know that yet. Uh, on the basis of what we've seen so far, uh, the, um, the most recent estimates by the IMF are suggesting that the highest cost, this could well be wrong, if I remember correctly, for the United States is about 12% of GDP. Six to uh, 13 was the figure, six to the range. Six yes, to yes, so 12 to 13 at the peak. Yeah. Um, now, that is, uh, that's a pretty high cost, mm -hmm. but as I'm sure I pointed out, uh, in a number of emerging market financial crises, the fiscal cost of bailing out the banks uh, went to as high as 55% of GDP. Uh, so, and the, so the, if, this, if that turned out to be right, and, and the, is the most extreme, most of the other countries have lower. I think for the UK it was about nine, wasn't it? Um, the, uh, I would stand by the statement that the fi direct fiscal costs don't look extraordinary by the standards of financial crises. I would, however, add one very important qualification, which I repeated many times. The big fiscal cost in all the other crises has, has generally been simply the impact on the fiscal position of huge recessions. And it is pretty clear now that the impact on the fiscal position of a number of countries, including the UK, of the recessions associated with this crisis are very large and very severe, and certainly larger than I then believed. 
So the overall impact on public debt of this crisis will clearly fall within uh, the now very famous measure estimates of, of Carmen Reinhart and Ken Rogoff, which suggested, roughly speaking, that it is normal in a crisis like this for public sector debt to double. Uh, and uh, given the starting point, that's roughly it. And that seems to me now a pretty plausible estimate for all the major uh, countries. To put it precisely, they said, I think it goes up to about 80 percentage points. Um, well, I, uh, let me see if I can add to what uh, uh, Martin has said. And I think that the, um, uh, first of all, I mean, the scale of intervention, um, and the, I like to think of it in these terms, and, and uh, uh, others think of it in different ways, but um, there's £400 billion pounds worth of um, liquidity, well, it's £375 billion of, uh, of special liquidity measures and quantitative easing and liquidity revision. And that's amazing in itself. Then there's 250 billion pounds worth of uh, guarantees into the bank market. There's 585 billion pounds of asset protection, and there's uh, the best part of 40 billion has gone into the base of the banking system. Now, those are that's cumulatively 1.3 trillion pounds. Now, I mean, some of that is liquidity and um, is close to risk-free and will come back eventually. Although there is a problem in that um, by 2007. Um, around 700 billion of the two and a half trillion of same liabilities in the United Kingdom were provided by foreign banks and they have fled the field. And part of the, uh, this liquidity provision, uh, I like to think of it, I'm used to hear what Martin says, is kind of the Bank of England stepping in necessarily to make good that gap. And that may be, that may take five or five years, even longer, before the Bank of England can kind of step back before money GDP rises sufficiently and savings rise sufficiently for, for UK savers and UK institutions and some returning foreign institutions to kind of make good. So that's, you know, a, there's an opportunity cost in that. Then there's the 585, 320 billion of asset protection to um, Royal Bank of Scotland and 260 billion to um, Lloyd's Group or in particular <coughs> HBOS. How much of that will be lost forever? Um, <coughs> the answer is, as uh, Martin says, nobody knows. Um, the, the IMF have a range of 6 to 13% of GDP, and they, and they put the number out before the budget and said it was 100 to 200 billion. Uh, and, what they, and almost all of that was in their asset protection, um, or kind of the British version of a bad bank. How much of that um, will go? Well, there's very, very, uh, and this has not been picked up enough, and I, I think it's the next phase for Martin and me, really, probably to do this. But the, the, um, all the incentives are for banks to actually take the first 10% of the loss and then pass the balance of any loss onto the taxpayer. And this is already taking place uh, in both um, loan portfolios, particularly HBOSs. Um, and Lloyd's made that clear last week when they gave their report and accounts. I actually think that the um, that the uh, the most recent figures, not the report and accounts. I think that uh, anything up to half um, uh, that that HBOS um, that's 130 billion pounds uh, will never come back. And I think that it could be a goodly quarter of the RBS. We could be talking about 200 billion. That will be partially compensated if we ever manage to sell the equity uh, in the two banks we now hold a stake in. The British taxpayer has 7% of RBS and 46% of Lloyd's Group. Uh, and those shares, if they were to double or treble in the next three or four years, 
were from the um, price that we, striking price at which the government took the stake, the gain on that will partly compensate for the loss on the asset protection scheme. But my hunch is that we could be looking at a, 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 the, 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 the eventual loss could be the order of 100 billion pounds. The IMS lower range, the loan of its range, is the, is, is the likely outcome. And that assumes quite a lot of good things happening, by the way. Um, that is, um, and then the, li the liquidity provision having to carry on. By any standards, that is an astonishing sum of money. Because over and above that, you've got the depth of the recession and the slow climb back. I mean, the National Institute in their um, economic review, which I thought was about, I thought it was quite good. good. I mean, they basically say, look, this recession began in March 08. And they don't expect um, 08 levels of output to be covered until the first quarter of, of 2012. Um, and that's probably about right. Um, and then you have to say, well, what's the trend growth rate going to be beyond that? I don't think it's going to be two and three quarter percent. I think it's going to be nearer two and two and three quarter percent. That's, we have a balance sheet constrained UK economy. And that's you know, all knock-on consequences of this extraordinary credit crunch. So however you describe it, the costs are amazingly severe financially. Before we start talking about unemployment, repossessions, um, uh, um, business models that are completely bust, um, foregone opportunity, I mean, really, this is, uh, this is a catastrophe and uh, needs to be understood in those terms. Do you want to come back on that? Yes, well, I think the really important point we agree on uh, is the really, big, the really, really big costs are the costs of the economy as a whole. And, uh, and among other things, from that to, to the public finances. To just to get one engage, let's suppose the cost of bailing out the banks was indeed 9% uh, uh, of GDP. Well, that's less than the, uh, the government's borrowing requirement in one year, just as a result of the whole range of things associated with the recession that's not. And uh, so the, the, the really big fiscal effects, quite apart from all the social and other effects that Will suggested, are the recession impact. The only other point I would make is, uh, um, I wrote about this once, um, I'm very, very unhappy with the way we've uh, gone about uh, guaranteeing our bank. He says, everybody's got a slightly different system. Uh, but. Uh, the problem we've got, it seems to me, with the incentive problem is basically these banks are still being run independently. Uh, obviously, the government is the largest shareholder. It's not clear how far it's interfering in the management of it. And once the bank gets beyond its, its tranche of losses, the losses are all being borne by the taxpayer. It has, at that stage, next to no incentive to manage its losses properly. Well, it's not even the, doing the, the, this, is, uh, this strikes me as an extremely... Uh, uh, bad, uh, bad situation. I, I was. I've, a lot of economists have been recommending this guarantee type of system, this insurance sort of system. They've used it elsewhere, but it's a, it's an approach that worries me, uh, uh, worries me a great deal. It's a very tr non-transparent way, essentially of budget, of giving uh, a basically a blank check to the institution. And uh, my own view is that once the gov we essentially the taxpayer is um, bearing all the risks, the taxpayer, the representative of the taxpayer, the government should have been running it in its in their own interest. But my, my understanding, Martin, is it's it's, it's uh, that your concern is absolutely happening. I mean, uh, both Royal Bank of Scotland and Lloyd's Group have put those assets um, into the t uh, their. The, the teams that do workout work and restructuring um, of, um, 
uh, companies that are in trouble to whom they've lent are not being allowed near those, those asset portfolios. They're being managed a different kind of way. They are being, um, and the companies which are being lent to are ready to be put in administration rather than having workouts or restructuring. That's exactly the incentives that you're that you're fearful of. And I want to come back to the social implications of this later. I mean, uh, not just the employment, but the inequality implications, for the implications for poverty and so on. But let's just move the discussion for a moment away from the developed world, where most of the attention has been focused in the certainly in the media in, in Europe, <coughs> uh, the, the impact of the crisis is, as you know, has clearly spilled over substantially into the real economy. There's been an extraordinary fall in, in, in global trade. This has impacted, of course, not just on China, but on some of the world's very poorest countries. Can you all hear an echo? Yes. 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 It's should, irritating, isn't should it? Should we just try and turn off these mics? Let's do an experiment. Now, you can still hear us, right? Can, can you hear us? China's export volumes were up 
25% on 20 on 2006, and the growth rate fell to 7 or 8% in 2008. The World Bank is forecasting minus 6.5% in 2009. And I personally think that figure could be too high. And, and China faces um, a, a really very substantial, uh, long overdue rebalancing of its economy. Um, it's going to have to lower its savings um, rate, increase its domestic consumption, and rebalance its economy away from reliance on you know, exports to the United States and Western Europe. But the, American, the Chinese don't want to do that. Um, their, uh, their industrial structure is predicated upon the, the capacity to export to uh, American and uh, to Asian and European markets. And making that change is extraordinarily difficult and time-consuming. They thought they could do it against a background of rising world trade over a period of years. They've got to do it in, this, in, a, period of, in a year or two or three. <coughs> the size of the Chinese reflation, which everyone remarks on, um, I think is, uh, is a, uh, the, the battle between um, the dungest um, you know, market-performing liberals uh, in China and the authoritarian state capitalists, and we won off emphatically by, this, by the authoritarians. The character of that reflation is all about su um, supporting state and enterprise and infrastructure spending, and astonishingly, about three quarters of the financing of the reflationary package falls to uh, uh, Chinese banks. Um, I think the Chinese banks, Ernst and Young, um, back in 2006, said that there were uh, between 600 and 900 billion dollars of non-performing loans to state enterprise in 2006. Um, that has, figure has doubled in the last, by the end of 2009. I think the figure will be close to two trillion. In other words, the Chinese banking system has got its own subprime crisis. Um, waiting to unfold, even as it tries to make this adjustment away from export-led growth. So you know you have China's actually in cons considerable trouble. You have other Asian countries, I think, in, in, in similar kind of um, suffering similar problems to um, China, not so acute because they were less reliant on exports than China and had lower savings rates. <coughs> you have Africa suffering you know, really adverse terms of trade and. Uh, almost cessation of private capital flows. You know, the, the world economic periphery um, is in profound trouble as we talk. I'd like, can you comment on that? But also perhaps bring in the role of the IMF and the World Bank, and particularly the G20's efforts to substantially increase the funds available to the IMF to, to, to commit themselves in principle to the reform of IMF. And do you think <coughs> this is sufficient to keep the world's poorest countries stable? Well, first of all, uh, this is very complicated, and I don't want to go over the same ground as well, so I'll try and put other things. The, the G, uh, G20, um, first of all, it should be said, the, the G20 meetings have been rather a remarkable feature of this story, uh, both because the outcome was certainly very different from the famous or notorious London Conference of 33, and uh, it indicated a somewhat higher level of cooperation, which is, of course, not very difficult since they, that failed completely. Uh, but in addition, in addition, uh, this was the, the, I think this was the, the passing of the baton. This was a, a moment at which of a, the highest possible crisis at which the decision was made that the only reasonable body to discuss the, uh, the policy and, and geopolitical and geoeconomic implications was a grouping that included all the major developing countries. Uh, some of us think it's too big, uh, and 
include some countries that perhaps shouldn't be there. I'm not going to list them. Um, uh, the UK, for example. But the, but the, but it includes clearly all the important countries. That's very important. And the agenda was very broad. And the the communique is actually, by the standards of international communique, particularly the last one, not at all bad in the range of things it covers. Yes. Okay. Not at all bad. Uh, that was, that was. I think that was rather remarkable. Very important and significant, and possibly. Uh, will lead to important things. Second, they, they agreed on some really important things. We will talk about regulation later. But the, they, they, they agreed, at least in principle, that the IMF's lendable resources would be increased, admittedly, in, through informal processes, because getting through quota increases takes forever, from about two, uh, roughly $250 billion to $750 billion. And efforts have been made to go in that direction. And there's also a decision, which I think is very important, potentially, to revive the SDR, the special drawing right, and make an allocation of that, too, uh, which, interestingly, the Chinese government has been supporting. There's some important contributions on this from the governor of the People's Bank of China on the international monetary system. I'm very pleased with that because I think the international monetary system is a core part of this whole crisis. It's not all of it, but it's an important part. I think that will happen, at least to some degree, and that will give the IMF uh, loanable resources to deal with crisis countries. And in case you hadn't noticed, the IMF nowadays, in terms of uh, you know, the, the, the famous loan lending conditions and, and the when he's going around the world telling people to have bigger fiscal deficits, this is a very new IMF. So there, there is an extraordinary change, and uh, Dominic Strauss-Kahn is an adroit politician. He understands the way the wind is blowing. So I would say it could have been much better, of course, but actually some quite uh, some things happened there, and that will be relevant to particularly to Central and Eastern Europe, some of the other larger countries. Now, let me just talk briefly about the countries uh, to the extent uh, that this has not been covered and the implications. Among the, m the more advanced emerging regions, it's clear that Eastern Europe has been the worst hit. And that has very profound implications for the a sort of underlying thesis of mine. Why was it the worst hit? Well, essentially because it was the only region of relatively advanced emerging country region which continued or indeed embraced the idea of opening itself to net capital imports and ran very large current account deficits. It, it did so because it believed that as it was integrating into the European economic space, uh, it would end up in, the countries would end up in the Eurozone. They were, to some extent, underpinned by the whole European project. And indeed, as Will said, as a corollary of that, many of them actually encouraged their, their citizens to borrow euros and Swiss francs and other such currencies. This turned out to be a pretty serious error. Uh, and they've learned the lesson that the Asians and the Latin Americans have learned in previous periods, that if you run very large current account deficits and you're hit by a financial crisis, which may have nothing to do with you, the capital will turn tail and run, and you will have an implosion of your economy. That's what happened to Asia in 97-98, and it's what's happening to this region at the moment, to, well, with very varying effect. Not every country is in the same situation. Uh, and one of the things they're going to learn from that is probably unless they end up in the Eurozone, is that they're going, to, uh, they're going to do the same thing as other emerging countries have decided to do, accumulate reserves, run current account surpluses, and that's going to increase the big global imbalances problem, which, I've been so, which has been a part of this whole story. But that's a very big part of it. 
Um, Asia is badly affected in a completely different way via ex manufactured exports. There's been a staggering collapse of manufacturing and manufactured exports because what's happened is that all the, cons the rich consumers of the world have decided that what they're going to stop doing is buying durables, which they can perfectly well postpone to some later point. And the collapse in demand for manufacturers has been simply staggering. Uh, and, uh, and that's hit Asia very, very hard. Um, it's a region that's been less reliant on capital inflows. In fact, they've pretty well insulated themselves. So that's gone through through trade. Latin America's been a bit in, in the middle of this. But most of the Latin American countries look as though they're going to survive this at least by comparison with other financial crises, relatively well. Now, on the, the, um, the really poor developing countries, I haven't looked through uh, by any means all countries, but the strong impression I get is of extraordinary variability in the impact. It's very striking, by the way, because I've been looking at that this today, that the IMF's own forecasts for Africa which were just produced a few weeks ago, are very optimistic. They, they, they expect sub-Saharan Africa to grow quite strongly this year. This may turn out to be utterly wrong. They also believe that capital will continue to flow into that region net, quite different from Eastern Europe, where it's expected to flood out. Um, whether that will turn out to be right, I don't know. But it is important to, to make some analytical distinctions in terms countries which are net exporters of commodities uh, particularly the commodities prices have collapsed, foodstuffs uh, particular, and metals and oil, um, are obviously very badly affected by this crisis. But it's important to remember there are quite a lot of emerging countries, very poor emerging countries, which are net importers of this stuff. They're going to be benefited uh, to some degree uh, by this. And of course, a lot of the very poorest countries are the countries that are least uh, integrated into the world uh, system. They're not going to be affected. I suspect that the worst affected poor people, but this is a suspicion I don't know, will turn out to be the vast number of poor people in countries that are actually in the middle income, that are moving quite fast. For instance, people in India and China. It is important to remember that India still contains within it more desperately poor people than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa on, all, on the Indians' own statistics. And if there's a significant decline in growth, and the same is going to happen in China, particularly given the structure of growth, which is going very capital intensive, this is not a way they're going to generate any jobs. If that happens, then actually it may well turn out when we know better that the poorest of the world who are really going to be hard hit will not be people living in sub-Saharan Africa, but actually very poor people living in these very big, still, very big countries which still have incredibly large numbers of poor people in it. This said, it's clear that one of the priorities should have been to use some part of this simply staggering amount of money we're throwing at the financial crisis to cushion poor countries against the shock. And this has happened, unfortunately, to a very limited degree. I want to ask you three more questions before we open up the audience. We've got about 20 minutes for this. So we'll be more disciplined. So I need you just to be a bit shorter each and each thing, because I'd like to get the background out before the audience asks some more particular questions. Let me just ask you a little bit about where we are with changes to regulation, nationally, regionally, and, and globally. Last time you were here, you both spoke of the need for some kind of global financial regulator. Global financial markets need some kind of global financial oversight. Um, okay, that's one of the challenges, but the challenge is clearly multi-level, national, regional, and global. Where do, do you think that the, we are moving nationally and regionally and globally in the right direction? 
In other words, do you think once we're out of this in the years to come, we will have a new regulatory regime that will significantly embody the lessons that we need to learn now? Martin, let's start with you on that. Okay. Um, well, I think my view of the, what, where we've got to is it will separate into um, structure and, and principles. We're not going to have a global regulator of the financial system. Uh, I'm not very surprised we're not going to have a global regulator. I hope for one, but I never thought we would agree on one. Uh, the US has made it in particular absolutely clear that uh, it, it, it cannot and will not delegate responsibility for regulating its most important financial institutions to any uh, external body. And I think that will be the, the, the general conclusion. But we're not going to have a global regulatory regime. So the, the more interesting question then is, will there be common principles implemented nationally or in the case of the European Union uh, on the European-wide scale in a consistent manner which themselves make sense? And the answer to that, I think, is only to a, a quite limited, a, to a, a quite limited extent. And here there are some really important issues. Um, absolutely fundamental conceptual issues. First, it seems to me quite clear that there has been, a, as it were, a tacit decision, it's exactly what I've expected, not to make fundamental structural changes to what the, the financial system is, namely, to essentially, to accept the financial system as it is and to try to regulate it better which means a number of quite detailed rules in terms of the way capital ratios work in banking systems, in the way derivatives markets work, all this sort of, these sorts of areas, but essentially accepting, indeed embracing, as we come out of this crisis, as the dominant players in the whole system, huge, even bigger, even more too big to fail, multi-product, multi-service, financial institutions operating in every market in every country in the world as the dominant players in the system. Uh, derivatives markets working more or less as they did before. They may move some of it onto exchanges. So in terms of the structure of the financial system, I think we're going to end up very disappointingly with remarkably little real change. What we can uh, expect, I think, is at least a period of somewhat tighter regulation. The Basel rules will all change on banking because they were, they, 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 they were obviously absurd. They're going to, there's going to obviously be a move to so-called macro-prudential regulation. There will be more systemic oversight at the national level, and there will be an attempt to coordinate that um, inter, internationally. There is one other huge conceptual issue that um, is not going to be addressed, it seems to me, which is how we combine a global financial system with national fiscal responsibility. We have been reminded here, we, we didn't confront this issue before, but we have been reminded, as Will has, has reminded us, of the immense cost of global banks that screwed up. Now, the, the immense cost to national taxpayers. Now, it's pretty difficult, it seems to me, 
to sustain a situation in the long run, this is something that people don't really want to address, sustain a situation in which national taxpayers underpin the balance sheets of institutions that do nearly all their activity offshore. That's particularly significant for the UK. Every time I think of what Barclays is doing in investment banking, I get very, very nervous because that's my money. Uh, it's your money too, I should say. Uh, and. I think that's another issue we've not addressed. So my feeling at the moment, I know it's a lengthy answer, is uh, that we should be pretty worried. We're going to have a period when the financial system will be quite cautious. It will last a month or two, maybe even, <laughs> it might even, I'm joking, it might even last a few years. But I am really worried for this and other reasons we'll come to, that we are laying the ground for the next crisis. Will? Uh, well, I think it's very disappointing, I have to say. I, I think the, um, can you hear me? Yeah, I think it's very disappointing, and I, I um, there's going to be tougher rules on on bank capital. Um, you can see that, uh, but you you run through a through a checklist. I mean, I um, you look at bank bank bonuses and bank pay. I mean, really, uh, there's some grand talk by the G20, but I don't expect anything substantive on that at all. Um, even the um, the proposals by the European Commission uh, on hedge funds and uh, which were aggressively resisted by the um, London hedge fund community on the grounds that they didn't cause the crisis. Um, and you could just, you could see the lineup already of, you know, where we were in 2007. As a matter of fact, uh, no account of the crisis and the seizure of the interbank markets um, is complete without the role of hedge funds. It was, as a matter of fact, the collapse of the two Bernstein's hedge funds uh, in end July of 2007 that led to, with I mean, $10 billion of, of um, uh, losses to investors, maybe it's closed investors, that was what caused the interbank markets to freeze in New York and uh, when Bank Paris had their three closing uh, in Europe. And uh, um, because everyone thought, my God, those highly leveraged hedge funds having, uh, you know, and there's going to be huge losses in interbank markets, will the counterparty to whom I've lent the money be able to get their money back from their hedge fund? And that was what actually caused the back markets for anything else to freeze, that what, that's what caused the rates to rise, and that's what actually got so many of the banks who relied upon the back market as integral to their business model into trouble, notably in Britain, Northern Rock, but also in the States, um, all, the, all the investment banks. So you know, the story that, this hedge fund story, we don't need to regulate it because we weren't part of the, of the story. The story was bank, big banks were too big to fail and building societies in Britain. It's just wrong, but already you can see them making that argument with no challenge, really. No, cha no, no effective challenge. I mean, Martin uh, will try, and yeah. I try, but no substantive challenge um, in, in the House of Commons, no substantive challenge from regulators that I've read. Um, and, uh, and so it goes on. I mean, you, you are, I think there's a, uh, an extraordinarily I, I personally think that the, um, most of the value added in so-called investment banking is close to zero um, and arguably negative. I mean, I, I don't understand the argument that we need to, that all this talent must, must leave London because we must carry on with investment banking. So we have all these bits and deals, most of which end up losing shareholder value, or they can manipulate the debt markets with the result that we've seen. Why do we need this industry? And if they want to go and play, they should do it with their own capital and without access to our guaranteed deposits. I mean, it really is. And yet, um, 
But Sir Ben Bischoff, uh, former chief executive of Citigroup, uh, was charged by Alistair Darling to produce a paper on the UK International Financial Services, which they co-chaired, actually. The list of people on it is a list of all the sort of dignitaries. It came out last week. Do go on the Treasury website and read it tonight. You will find it starts off quite well with a, a kind of orthodox account of the crisis, which is, I mean, kindly, I think, says it's all systemic about global imbalances. Not much to do with bankers. Um, and then it says, we, of course, we, we need the minimum regulation, but of course we need some regulation to regain trust, which we understand we have lost. So only to regain trust we need some regulation. But then substantially, we must leave the system as is. We must have, for miners say, we must have these giant banks. We, must, we mustn't allow banking to go back to cottage industries. I mean, at cottage firms, why not have 10, 20, 30 British banks? We are, to my money, you know, there are 9,000 United States banks for an economy which is, what, what uh, about eight times our size. Pro rata, Britain have 1,000 banks. I don't not advocate that, but you know, we certainly could have more than four. And I don't actually, and I, and I plus nationwide and a few building societies. I mean, I don't see, I don't, I, I, I don't see what the arguments of scale are in, in banking. I think a plurality of runners and riders. Certainly, I'd like to see, and to name a name, I mean, variable rate mortgages um, from Barclays Bank, in particular, are 4.99 percent. Buying them into bank markets at 0.5. That's 449 basis points for those That is, those are margins. They are they, incredible gross margins. Incredible. But there's no competitive challenge because the other three banks are not going to challenge them. So, you know, we need, uh, and, the, and if you, the only, the only politician who's tried very tentatively, and whether he'll stand by way in office when elected next year, is an open question, is George Osborne, who has actually had the temerity to say that actually, you know, the nationalised banks, or the part nationalised banks, should be broken up. Um, and we shouldn't have banks that are too big to fail. And I find myself unexpectedly, wholeheartedly agree with the Conservative politician. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, 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 you know, and I find that I find the line of the British government on this um, breathtaking. And we have not taken the opportunity to restructure the banking system at all. Okay, well, can let me on that. Let me let's, let's keep with that theme for a minute. Sorry, I didn't. No, no, because no, <laughs> I think what you said is, is very important, and, and, and you say it in a way I think that is. That is very significant. But let me just ask you something slightly more theoretically now. Is that Martin wrote in a wonderful article in the Financial Times recently summarizing the nature of the crisis? He said something like, well, referring to Dorothy and uh, the Yellow Bick Road, saying that the financial crisis has thrown the house up in the air and it was sort of spinning down, and you open the window, and the only thing we can say is we're no longer in Kansas. That is to say, we don't quite know where we are post the crisis. Um, in other words, that many shibboleths have uh, fallen to the ground, the isms of uh, liberal financial market ideologies have fallen to the ground, liberal economics has had come in for a hell of a hammering, and so on and so forth, that the standard liberal model uh, has, uh, has been profoundly questioned. And yet, what you are both saying this evening is actually the system is intact, there are going to be some regulatory changes, but actually, the seeds of its further development and instability are, are already set into the future. And actually, it's not that the house has come down and we say we're no longer in Kansas. We know exactly where we are. True or false? I, correct. Well, the, one of the, the, this gets back to the, the really big issues of where we come, how we come out of this crisis. Uh, I think that 
And th this is very, this is really tentative because we're right in the middle of this. We don't know how, the, how this is going to go. It seems to me that the scale of the support that has been given to the financial system and uh, to the economy via fiscal policy, um, which is completely unprecedented in peacetime. We've never run fiscal deficits like this anywhere uh, in, in major countries in peacetime. Monetary policy that we're seeing today is completely unprecedented. Uh, so basically everything has been thrown out. And those unbelievable margins are, of course, exactly what government wants. That's how yeah, yeah. the money is transferred to the banking system. That's why it's so nice to be a bank. They can lend, they can borrow from the central bank. You can't. Uh, the, and the central bank can create this stuff without limit. Now, the, uh, so the, the very fact that we are having this extraordinary policy response, and there is now much discussion that the, the economy itself might turn around in the course of this year, certainly early next year, which doesn't seem to me implausible given the scale of the, the stimulus, obviously reduces the pressure for fundamental reform. That's the first point. The more successful you are at macroeconomics, the, the less pressure there is for micro change. This is one of those great dilemmas, and I've accepted that, because I don't think that in order to get a reform of the financial system, I want to live through the Great Depression. Uh, and so, and <laughs> this is, and I mean, by and large, big reforms follow big disasters, and the more successful they are, this is a disaster, but the more successful they're making it a manageable disaster, the less big reform there'll be. That's the first point. The second point is, I clearly, but there's an important qualifier, I'll take just two more points. Second point, one really cannot underestimate the effectiveness of the financial sector as a lobbyist. Uh, it, is, it, it is in a class of its own. I don't need to say any more on that because it just happens to be true. And in the UK, of course, it has become, I think you're going to come to that, the sort of the dominant industry. So it's, but I'm not just talking about the UK. It's true elsewhere. I won't go into... Uh, um, the third point, however, and I would insist on this, is that it does seem to me that uh, intellectually, what I say, I would still stick by the, the, the fundamental ideas that drove economists and policymakers in the direction of liberalization of the financial system and the way they did it over the last, let's say, t 10, 15 years, maybe 20. Um, they have been largely discredited, and economists are very well, or many economists are very well aware of that. Economics is now at a war with itself, which I think is a very interesting process. If, as I believe will be the case, and we can discuss this more, that this will not be a, a real resolution of the problem, because so many of the deep underlying problems are still there, not least the simply monstrous debt and credit overhangs in our economies, which we can't just wish away because they're there. Uh, and uh, therefore I expect the financial sector to show new problems in the future. I suspect we are going to get to the, a different world more slowly and more painfully, but I would be very surprised if in the end we don't end up in a somewhat different world. Uh, but it is the case that, at the moment at least, the whole thrust of policy is to get through it by throwing the kitchen sink at it macroeconomically, as it were, and let the microeconomics essentially fall back the way where they started. Exactly. Go on, Will. Well, I, I very much agree with that. I mean, I, um, and uh, I mean, the scale of the support I described at the beginning, I mean, 1.3 trillion pounds plus, you know, of which a component of this budget deficit of 175 billion is, <coughs> is keeping the system going, actually. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the 
shock report to look at that. If you were going to revise, if you were going to think about you know, the creation of UK international financial services, it might have been nice to have some voices on that group of men and women, who were mainly men, by the way, who weren't international bankers, who might actually have said, you know, um, like, for instance, challenged grit into that decision-making and that deliberation, but there weren't. And if you ask them to write a report about what about how they think their future is going to be, you can hardly be surprised at what they've come up with. And will things move in a in a in a, in a intellectually in a, in a different way? Um, I think they um, almost they have to uh, because the, the 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 models that um, officials, regulators, academics, intellectuals, commentators have used to describe the world have probably failed. And you can't. We are sentient human beings. We, you know, we're not in the business. Most of us trying to get things wrong. We want to try and get things right. And if you, if a, if a, if if the if, if the model that you're carrying in your head doesn't work, you try to adapt it. And I think that present adaptation is in the is in the best um, American universities already beginning. Um, trouble is in Britain, um, the capacity to, to kind of declare intellectual independence, certainly economics. Uh, and some other um, social scientific disciplines, um, it's quite difficult. It's their textbooks, it's, you, know, you want to get published in their journals, they pay a peer review you, so you better buy into that stuff if you want to actually get a job after the LSE at Stanford or Bristol or somewhere. And that's kind of, there's a big, there's a lot of considers within the profession for actually you know, towing the line. Um, but actually, if that line leads to such kind of bad predictions of what, of what actually happens in the real world, I think change is, is, is likely to take place. I do think that there will be um, more recognition that, uh, in, that institutions and the structure of institutions and incentive institutions um, matter a lot. So I think there will be a, uh, the question of corporate governance will open up. I think how companies are owned will open up. I think there will be a lot of interest in monetary and financial theory, which has been quite a closed book. I mean, it's been you know, almost no one taking interest in it. I mean, I think that I think Keynesians. Um, will start actually to start saying the fact that it's not just a case of particular market failure. Keynesianism is a, is a way of looking at the world and, hey guys, uh, it works. Um, and I, I, I think the world, I think the kind of policies we will see will be much more in the Galbraithian, um, um, New Keynesian um, economic philosophy than actually um, the one that kind of inverted commas, market fundamentals are not particularly happy with the market fundamentals tag, but you know, uh, everyone understands what I mean by that. Um, but uh, it's going to be slow. It's going to be slow. Um, because so many people are bought into um, you know, the, current, the current way of thinking. I mean, bankers certainly are. Um, academics certainly are. Regulators certainly are. Uh, business school um, courses certainly are. Um, and actually, a lot of our institutions are predicated upon um, a view of how the world should operate which just isn't right. And so moving them um, is not going to happen like that. It will be a process that takes some years. Now, I want to ask one more question, but I don't want to shortchange you all. So all I'm going to do is put my quest last question on the table for later, and maybe you can come back to it <coughs> if, you think it's, if you think it's relevant. So we're going to take questions in clusters of four or five, if that's all right, to get as many of you the chance to, to raise issues. Uh, keep your questions fairly short, that would be great. We've only got one mic down here and one at the top, is that right? Just sorry? And one down here? No down here, so you guys will have to shout. And you might have to shout too, we might forget the mic. 
But let me just put my question on the table for later, then I'll come back to you. The question is, particularly I'm interested in, the implications of all this for the UK. The UK has undergone a period of deindustrialization over the last three to four decades. There's been a massive decline in the relevance of the manufacturing sector. It's an economy that depends increasingly on services and the financial industry. The city is now in disarray. What is the impact of all of this on the UK in particular? We seem actually caught, as it were, in a very vulnerable position going forward. And I wonder, I'd like you to comment upon that at some point in the proceedings. Yes, the lady in the middle, please. Yes, you have to speak up because there's no mic down here. Shout. Louder. surprised when you talk about the banking lobby, you don't discuss members of the FSA, but uh, to, to, to uh, uh, quick question, uh, we have the bankers blaming the politicians, the politicians blaming the media, and it's all one big tripartite circle here. When are you going to look around and start blaming individual people and say, you know what, the public, the spend now, save data culture has to stop, and people have to realise, have a bit of financial education involved. Okay, the gentleman next to you, just might as well get you both at the same time. Sure. Thank you very much. It is a quick question. Um, based on the, uh, the massive collapse in Chinese expert, exports that you, uh, that you talked about, is there, I mean, I know Hillary Clinton has been to China several times in the past few months begging them to keep servicing American debt. I was just wondering if you think they are going to continue to, and if not, what happens then? Four ways out. You either have a 
in order to ensure that you all have another chance to do that at least more than once, I need the I need you guys to be disciplined too. So, um, Will, go for it in your usual way, but keep it to three or four minutes. Um, goodness me, three or four minutes and all of that. And then your question about the UK economy on the table too. Um, I think that um, uh, climate change. Um, I. Fair enough, I think that the, um, uh, the fact that G20 managed to make so much progress um, and uh, uh, the Chinese are indicating, uh, along with the Americans, some movement. Um, I'm not so pessimistic about uh, Copenhagen as I was um, four weeks ago. So uh, that, and I think that actually there have been um, some lessons about the necessity for collaboration that are highly useful. Um, on China, um, I think that the, um, the Chinese are holding more and more of their reserves in gold bullion and in euros and less in dollars, and that will have, um, that will be the kind of interdependence between China and America is um, <coughs> plainly going to be threatened by that. <coughs> that will be, um, uh, what's actually happening um, in China is that it's trying, it's moving, uh, it's trying to move away from um, uh, kind of this interdependence it's had and its export dependence, it's trying to change, um, but it's trying to do it uh, by being by by holding on um, the extended prizes, the the uh, actually freezing um, um, the reform program in important respects. I am really profoundly concerned about what's taking place in China, um, and I think in the next um, three or four years, it is quite likely that there'll be very substantial uh, banking crisis and that there'll be very substantial rows um, within the Politburo um, and maybe uh, we sh um, may even threaten a peaceable handover to the fifth generation of Communist Party leaders. That's where, in a sense, where I think the genesis of the, or the locus of this crisis um, goes next. On points about kind of hedge funds and uh, naming some names, I mean, it is striking, isn't it, that, uh, you know, there's been... Um, AIG has been looked at uh, because there's been outright fraud at AIG. Um, there's been some hedge funds managers uh, actually arrested in the states. Um, they and I always think the Americans uh, take capitalism seriously enough and the chance of malfeasance serious enough to actually get in there and uh, and um, do a, do some arrests. And actually, um, we see we we see Bernie Madoff um, in his handcuffs. Um, guilty. Do we really believe that there was absolutely nothing about happening of similar order in, in the UK, in London, that we were angels and the you know, only people um, who uh, behaved badly or should actually be in some, um, pulled before the courts are in, are in the States? I think not. Um, I certainly believe, agree with you that financial education should be substantively um, improved. As for the point about hedge funds, and um, uh, I... I, in the end, in the end, um, um, yup, there were the global imbalances. Yup, the regulatory environment was um, uh, poor. Um, uh, yes, um, shareholders um, should have um, insisted that the incentive structure in these banks was better. But in the end, in the end, you know, the people who generated collateralized debt obligations and grew them zero to more than $10 trillion in less than a decade, imagining that they had bolished risk, were actually the American uh, and British 
uh, investment banks with some you know, Kuwaiti-sized ladders, Dubliners, um, kind of uh, doing a bit in their way. And one, one has to say that is where the locus of the problem is. And I, I, I think they're trying to say you know, it's uh, broader problems or uh, you know, not a, you know, we shouldn't carry on blaming bankers. I, I think one really has to um, keep one's eye you know, very firmly attached to that. And I, I actually, yeah, the Germans and the French are probably a bit too obsessed by hedge funds. But actually to imagine that hedge funds, I repeat myself, were not part of this story is just factually not right. They were part of the story. And actually, with that more transparency, more system, more, more system in the way their, 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 their accounts are looked at by the regulators is absolutely in order, in my view. Okay. Pass the baton to Martin. Um, I, in order to save time, because uh, uh, I'm going to focus on one question, which actually I think has been asked in four different ways, which is, um, since how the hell do we get out of this credit overhang mess? Now, part of the, uh, the question is, uh, my sense of what happened in the world economy, and it diverges a little from Will, or at least it, it, it leads to the same conclusions, is that, and this is incredibly crude, uh, the, the system worked for reasons which are very deep and don't have time to explain by having uh, some countries, actually in this case predominantly a number of developed countries, specialise in consumption and others specialize in production. This is extremely crude. Um, and the people who specialize in consumption or the spend now, save later culture did a remarkably good job of it. And uh, the British were not the least uh, uh, in this. And in the process of getting lots of people to spend far more than their income, um, which is really what we were trying to do, um, in response to what was going on in the world, we generated massive housing bubbles and massive credit bubbles, and that's what we live with now. And I, let me be quite clear, I'm not trying to blame anyone, that's what happened. Um, now the question is, um, so what now? Well, the, this is really very tough, and it's what worries me. It seems to me quite clear what now, what the world economy is trying to do, what we, quote unquote, in aggregate are trying to do, is to get all that working again uh, by first getting a large part of it done through government debt, and so that's what the fiscal expansions are, and another part of it, but through the incredible monetary policies going on, and what we're doing with the financial system to get the, the household sectors to start borrowing again, so to go back to where we were. And that's, in a sense, what everybody wants to happen. The only problem with it is there's so much of this stuff out there already. And, and uh, the danger is, and I, I, it's very severe, if we succeed, we'll just generate an even bigger crisis later on. So how do we get out of it, which is the question you raised. Um, well, if we talk about the desirable ways of getting out of it, it seems to be pretty clear. We don't want, I don't, I don't particularly want hyperinflation. Well, some people do, but I don't. Uh, I don't want liquidation. That's what they tried in the 30s. It wasn't a good idea. Um, uh, so you have to grow out of it. That's essentially, you, your economy has to grow out of it, which means there has to be a fairly extended period in which private credit does not grow faster than the economy, but it still grows. The economy grows in the borrowing. That's really hard. There are only two ways you can do that. 
One, you have to move into a large net export position. In other words, the deficits have to be shifted, and, the, and countries like ours become surplus countries. Very, very difficult. And secondly, you need a fairly long period when the government runs deficits, which is what Japan, the Japanese did. And uh, so the, 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 the private debt overhang becomes socialized. For reasons that I think are clear, that's risky, but actually it does seem to me pretty clear that um, governments can bear significantly more debt than they started off with, and, and that's one a part of uh, this process. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. This way of getting out of it doesn't work if one of two things uh, are in the way. The, the the surplus countries broadly defined don't play ball. That is to say, they don't. The world out there doesn't generate the demand which allows the US and the UK, in other words, to export their way out of this difficulty. That comes to your future of the British economy thing. I'm talking about a long-term process. And secondly, it doesn't work if at some point before we've gone through this transition, which I think of as a 20-year transition, the, uh, the, the deficit, fiscal deficits are not brought down to a level and the debt stock associated with it that the markets are comfortable with bearing. In other words, if you have a major debt crisis in AAA-rated sovereign debt in UK and US bonds, and if either of the, neither of these things, if the former doesn't happen and the latter crisis does happen, we're completely screwed. Now, this is a really big point, in my view, because we can get this whole mechanism started again and it doesn't solve the underlying problem, which is the core of my book, which is the international economic system doesn't work. And, the, and it doesn't work in very, very dangerous ways. Now, if we don't get those letouts, if we don't, can't export our way out of it, and if we can't um, sustain the fiscal position, then ineluctably there will be default, and the, and the efficient way to default, quote unquote efficient, is through inflation. So currencies get destroyed. And in the and the Chinese that comes to the Chinese thing, the Chinese deciding they don't want to hold dollars at all, and everybody else who holds dollars deciding they don't want to hold dollars and ditto pounds is part of the process which brings that about, and we have a monetary meltdown. Great. <laughs> <laughs> One more round. Short question. Yeah. yeah. Short question. Good. That's the big story. How how much responsibility do the politicians have in all this? My experience is they they can be very naive about financial matters. Um, some of them still look at the economy with ideological spectacles and think this is a little local difficulty. We can back to get back to free markets and uh, and um, and so on. Uh, would would a Conservative government next year, you know, talking about um, big cuts? I've heard one or two Tories saying, we might have to abolish the whole social security system, which is obviously rubbish, but that's the way some people are thinking. Would there be a big difference next year? You promised me a short question. Okay. <laughs> I'm not paid enough for currency yes. predictions. Yes, you. Louder.
think accounting standards escalate in the financial crisis? That's something that perhaps Will, I didn't ask you about that, Will, it's a question I wanted to ask you. You spoke about that before. Perhaps Will could take that question. Yes, gentlemen in the middle. What do you get wrong from last time when we met here? What do you think is going to happen? Okay. All right, what did you get wrong? <laughs> and finally, one last question from someone at the back, the gentleman at the back with the black t shirt. Last question, I'm sorry. The only good, the, I think the, uh, the answer to that, all the things I got wrong, I got wrong before last October. <laughs> By last October, the important things were reasonably clear, except how much it was going to cost to bail out the banks, which is a sum that keeps on rising. Um, uh, on the, uh, the question about uh, what's going to happen to our public finances, um, well, we're, uh, this is now, and how it's going to be managed, this is now up for grabs. Right at the moment, and nobody knows how much of this is structural and how much of it is cyclical, but the Treasury's view, also the European Commission's view, is that we have a structural fiscal deficit of 12% of GDP, which is a quarter of our public spending. Um, there is no way you can adjust that without a, somebody paying a lot more or losing something. The... Uh, in essence, the country has turned out to be much poorer than it thought it was, and politics, real politics, after this election will be back, because we're going to have to decide how we're going to make that adjustment. Um, uh, the election will be a masterpiece in avoiding that question. Uh, the, the masterclass, I should say, in avoiding that question, um, uh, as the budget was, of course. Um, currency predictions. I have learned fairly little in my professional, professional quote-unquote life, and one of them is never predict, I never predict, especially the future. But even more, I never predict currencies. Um, uh, but I think the safest bet here is the renminbi, which has to go up uh, uh, and keep on going up. Unfortunately, you can't buy it. So this is a, a, slight, uh, a, a slight problem. From its current level, from its current exalted level, the dollar doesn't look very good to me. Accounting standards. Um, uh, this is the mark-to-market thing on the trading book. In my view, I don't know whether all the investment banks and the investment banking arms of banks started complaining about the fact that they, they were forced to mark-to-market on the trading book. And that was the whole game. They wanted to be investment banks. Nobody forced them. It's a damn full idea. Here I agree with Will. Now, if you're in an investment bank, everything is to be traded. So you market to market in the trading. Go back to being proper banks and we won't worry you in this way. But the idea that you'd have trading books and make up the prices as you go along strikes me as completely batty. Uh, so quite, quite, I really get very, very irritated uh, on... Uh, 
on uh, this one. It takes a lot. You asked, and you asked me about uh, the really big question. I'm sure I missed something, because there were so many wonderful questions here. Um, the future of the British economy. I think my answer to that, and because I've, so I suppose I've learned very slowly about this, is interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's not clear. Now, the final question was, um, why do we make banks a bust and replace them with Gosbank, essentially? Well, that's essentially what you're proposing. We have one national bank which, uh, which uh, can create money, will. Because I feel, and we will obviously disagree on that, that countries have tried that and it didn't work terribly well. But the, but the, um, the real reason why we don't just bankrupt all the banks, we can clearly close them down, is uh, we don't want, we have made the decision, rightly or wrongly, not to default on the liabilities of the banks. I mean, the banks simply are us. They are, uh, the, the liabilities of the banks are the deposits, the, uh, the, uh, the money you have in insurance companies, the money you have in your pension fund, well, probably some of you don't yet have a pension fund, but you might hope for one once uh, in the future. Um, I think it's a catastrophe that we can't allow any sort of default on any of these banks, and in fact, we should have done so. Yeah. We should have done so in a careful, measured way. I've written about this a lot. But letting the whole banking system implode, just simply let it wipe, wipe out, um, uh, that gives you multiple Lehman's, or it gives you the 1930s, and we've been there. We really don't want to do that again. Will, last five minutes? Well, lots of things that Martha and I agree with, and I won't go over them. Uh, one or two points. I mean, the, on accounting standards, it's not only mark to market, although I raised that last time and I agree with uh, what uh, Martin said. And, uh, it's even more than that. I mean, I, a number of people have written and I agree with them. I mean, I didn't know, uh, and a lot of us didn't know, um, the degree to which um, collateralized debt obligations um, were being held offshore. And auditors actually were passing accounts as true and fair without actually, um, to, to my mind, giving us an extent of the um, assets that were held offshore. So, you know, there's a whole story about market market, there's a whole story about actually the authenticity of account of, of and, and thoroughness, which all just needs to take place. And I, so, you know, uh, enough said, I think, on that. Uh, on the point about the Rimbi, I always like to remind people that the Rimbi is not a reserve currency. You can't buy it, you can't use it for trade um, between third parties. One of the things that actually constrains China's role national financial system. Um, it's, it's got a lot of our dollars, a lot of gold, a lot of uh, our euros and pounds, but it, you can't use it. And it's a big important point about China, which is often not raised enough, that actually a country which isn't a, and that isn't got no intentions of allowing itself to have a reserve currency, um, you know, cannot really be regarded as a major player, and certainly in the world of finance and financial diplomacy. Um, uh, what, what thing? I, I rather agree with um, uh, Martin. I mean, I, I think I've got wrong. Um, by October, um, uh, my mistakes were were before October. I mean, I, and I made many of them. But I mean, since October, it's been it's been uh, it's been watching uh, the car crash play out in ways which I think we, we broadly uh, got right actually when we were here in in, in October of, of, of last year. I, I, was <coughs> I didn't expect the G20 to be uh, as effective as it was, actually. And I was pleased about that. Um, and Gordon Brown's got lots of things wrong, but that was one thing that he um, got right. Um, the, were the politicians? I do think that there is a real problem.
this. Um, George Osborne made one or two good speeches, uh, but in the main, uh, you know, you've got 659 MPs in the House of Commons. There's a joke made about them. <laughs> what, what, uh, yeah, I can't make the joke. I mean, they are good. At that. <laughs> They're certainly very good at, the, at uh, negotiations with the House of Commons fee office. Uh, but they're much less good uh, at understanding the dynamics of domestic international finance. And that is actually a very disabling. I mean, everyone understands you know, the health service education system and the welfare system. They can, they can get on the high legs and talk about that. You know, the rights and wrongs of, of talk, you can talk about that. But actually, you know, the operation of the financial system, for many people, is a completely closed book. And, and actually, many of the, much of what's gone wrong is because there are so few uh, politicians and frankly so few journalists uh, leaving aside and the, the FT who really do understand uh, the financial system and its pivotal importance um, and that is a uh, I don't know whether we're going to um, uh, redress that intellectual failure um, yes I think politicians were highly ideological, they all bought one of the most amazing speeches and again, do go on the Treasury website <coughs> and read it um, it's uh, Gordon Brown's um, speech on June the 20th, 2007, at the Mansion House, which I had enormous fun with in this, the this, dispatches I made, uh, two dispatches films I made for Channel 4. I mean, it really is a, a hymns of praise to light touch regulation, congratulating the City of London for its innovative genius, praising it for the financial instruments it invented, which, of which, on which the, you know, so much prosperity hung, uh, asking the rest of the British economy to reproduce uh, the kinds of things that were taking place in the city, if only it could be as entrepreneurial as the city of London. I mean, you read it, and uh, paragraph by paragraph, the, the gloriousness of it, you know, abolished boom and bust, and what a glorious 10 years it's been. Uh, it is amazing. All that I can say is if you read speeches by other politicians at the time, they outdo even Gordon Brown <laughs> in, their, in their praise of the city. Certainly David Cameron, George Osborne, they've got uh, kind of one ratchet higher in the abusive praise of the city of London. And people did buy, the political class and politicians of all parties did buy the story of the financial services sector that um, was not just our future, but actually um, uh, in it was some unique innovativeness and entrepreneurialism, which actually the rest of the country could do well to um, reproduce. We know that story isn't true now. So where do we go in the next decade, this country? Uh, Martin says, interesting, I don't think we'll recover um, 2008 levels of GDP until 2012, uh, 2007 house prices, the peak until 2015. Um, we face... Um, God, you're an optimist. <laughs> 2020 is my The house prices. <laughs> house prices. Uh, ridiculous. Uh, I, uh, all the engines of growth of the, of the decade of 2007 are, are busted, are bust. And um, we are balance sheet constrained. And that was the question that people various, well, I mean, how are we going to get around these balance sheet constraints? Well, the answer is, we're going to have to, in my view, um, Fox very clever, and I think build um, some new banking capacity. One of the answers to the dilemma of how to get through the next decade is actually, let's build some new banks, let's build some new banking capacity, um, so that at least we can get sufficient credit growth to finance some kind of recovery. I don't think there's sufficient bank capacity in the United Kingdom at the moment, and the bank capacity that we have is very risk-averse, usurious, short-termist, all the 
things I criticise the banking system for when I wrote the state we're in in the mid-1990s are up there in lights uh, now. And I think the opportunity uh, confronts us as a national community to really think through how we do banking, how we do finance, which is the necessary, if insufficient, condition for sustained growth. And I don't think that we have a banking system that's fit for purpose, and we need that debate out in the open. And really, the, the fact that there's one speech from George Osborne and three from Vince Cable, and, we, and, uh, and we're sticking to and we're holding on to nurse fear of something worse, is not good enough. But what will drive growth in the next decade will be, I think, uh, over and above. And those, that, um, it will be, let's hope, some really good innovations. And actually, innovation is a great kind of wealth generator. And in the, in the next decades, two, three decades, the many of these general purpose technologies, like the internet, uh, like internal combustion engines, that have, been fu that have fired up growth kind of over the last uh, you know, many hundreds of years, there's an intensification of their introduction. And actually, we may find uh, if we could just build a sufficient uh, credit growth relief, um, uh, I'm not. I mean, why should it be that the public sector has to only have 60% debt to GDP ratio? Couldn't it stick at 80 and just gradually get down to 60? Why does? Why do you have to say that going up to 60 by 2015? Or uh, these artificial targets seems to be kind of completely inappropriate. It seems to me one should put the growth target first, the development objectives first, the employment objectives first and then try to see that the, that the debt that follows from it is more or less livable with, rather than putting the financial criteria first. So for me, we, we, kind of, we, we innovate our way out of this. We try to um, lift the balance sheet constraints by reinventing our, our, our banking system. And yes, we have to have export growth, as Martin has said. But it's going to be a very, very difficult and tough decade. Well, I mean, they can't walk on water. They can't single-handedly restore the British economy but they came twice to the LSE, and we need to thank them greatly for that.